Hey y'all, I'm Reese, and welcome to Making Meaning. Meaning is a podcast by the Cohere Collective and is here to guide you along your path to make meaning in a way that makes sense for you by sharing an array of meaning-making stories. This week, I chat with author and Bioneers co-founder Nina Simons about her wonderful book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Listens for Leadership. Our truly rich conversation spans so many different topics, covers, just the tip of the iceberg of this book, and we dive into activism, self-growth, our connection to nature, and plenty of other topics. There's a little something for everyone in this one. Nina's book won the 2018 Nautilus Award in gold for the women category and the award in silver for the social change and social justice category. If you want more of Nina, you can discover her on Instagram at one Nina Simons, and even more of her work is at www.ninasimons.com. So let's take a deep breath and get started. so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. I hope it's as beautiful over outside of Santa Fe as it is in Dallas this afternoon, but I appreciate your time and energy being here. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, and it is a beautiful afternoon here. We just had a little sprinkle of rain, which in the high desert where I live is always a blessing right and makes the desert smell amazing so i'm in gratitude oh how fun i've never been to new mexico and i'm like i should definitely go i've heard it's beautiful so that's great to hear um to kick us off the first question i always like to ask all my guests is just one thing you're grateful for a nice simple question to help us start on the right foot and whatever the first thing that pops to mind is perfect it does not have to be fancy at all you know i i'm grateful for the gift of mother life Mm. and i just completed a board meeting for the organization that i've been co-shepherding for 34 years and i'm grateful to have found my way into work that nourishes my soul Absolutely. I think that um, as a young person who very much values that kind of work and has seen different life paths that my peer cohorts have all taken, it's rare even for young people to find work that nourishes their soul. And it takes bravery to do that. So that is really wonderful. Um, My second question that will kind of open up this conversation for us a little bit, and of course ties us into your wonderful book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Lessons for Leadership. Um, But I'm just going to ask you, what is your story? Um, Feel free to share whatever portion of that you would want to, whatever you feel called to say in this moment is exactly right 
<laughs> Thank you. Uh, wow. Let's see. Um, you know, because I'm in the middle of designing a course on sacred activism, mm. um, I want to tell my story through that lens because what has been startling to me as I review the trajectory of my life work is that every major change or shift or evolution of my path has been informed by a kind of spiritual guidance mm. and some sort of a moment of aha. Um, and so I assumed in my early life that my contribution would be through the arts because sure. my parents were both artists and I loved the arts and especially live theater. And, you know, so I immersed myself in that. And then as I discovered how hard it might be to earn a living at the kind of theater that I really believed in, right. which challenged people's belief systems and was not just entertainment, I got kind of disillusioned. I um, took my mother up on an offer to study for a weekend with a spiritual school for consciousness that she was involved in called Arika, that was started by a Bolivian mystic and um, spent about five years doing all their trainings. Yeah. And then when I came to visit her in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I felt called to move there. I was living in New York City at the time and all my friends said, are you kidding? You're moving where your mother is? You've been so happy being across the country from her. And I, and I had to say, well, I can't not move there because she's there. And uh, fair enough, right? Fair enough. And, uh, and, and so I did wind up moving here. And I really felt called by the land. I felt like there was some sort of mm, historical memory in the land that had been occupied by humans for so very long. And also that the land had a particularly feminine quality to me. And I, I couldn't, it wasn't a rational awareness, but I felt it in my body and in my bones. Mm. And so I moved to New Mexico and embarked on a five-year process to reconcile the issues that I had had with my mother for so long so that we could live in the same town and I could not be kind of obsessed with my relationship with her. And thankfully, she was someone who was really open to all kinds of ways of perceiving and philosophizing and learning. And so we did shamanic work and we did all kinds of work together. And I disentangled my own psyche enough from her so mm. that I was able to have a very loving relationship with her until her death about three and a half years ago. Um, and I always felt really proud of myself that I took that on so completely and that we were successful at it. Um, and then so soon after I moved here, actually a few years after I moved here, I met my life partner and he, that partnership wound up opening all kinds of possibilities for me. Um, and uh, the first was 
that when I first met him, he was finishing a documentary film about the politics of cancer therapy, of wow. all things, which and, and the history of medicine. And I didn't know anything about all that. But his father had recently died, and soon after his father died of cancer, he started learning about the existence of alternatives that were not widely known or accessible. And as we're living in a time where there's more and more cancer, unfortunately, which many people believe is directly related to the environmental toxicity we've accumulated, right? Um, that work really sparked me. and. Um, the word he had been working on this film for like four or five years when we first met and he was getting phone calls at all hours of the day and night from people who'd just been diagnosed with cancer who wow. called up to say I'm terrified and I heard through the grapevine that you might know something about options for treatment and I was just I felt like you know, my heart said, oh my gosh, this is so important. How do we get this information more widely out there? So mm -hmm. I worked with him um, to complete and market the film. And we just found that working together was an incredible joy. And as he puts it, it we were like peanut butter and jelly. It was just, you know, it was easeful and we were complimentary and it was a good scene. And um, then he was invited to come and film a biodiversity garden in Southern New Mexico. And uh, I, having grown up in the city, knew nothing about farming or gardening, thought I was going for a weekend in the country. Mm -hmm. And when we got there, we had this tour through this, the most beautiful garden I'd ever seen. And as we walked through the garden, the master gardener who was tending it would introduce us to each plant and he would say its common name and its Latin name and how it was related to all the plants around it. And I began to realize that this man knew these plants better than a lot of people know their own families. Mm. And, um, and there were hundreds and hundreds of very diverse and unusual plants living in close proximity to each other and I began to realize as we walked through it that not only was it the most beautiful garden visually that I'd ever seen, but my, all my senses started getting engaged because there were sunflowers that were like eight feet tall and had foot in diameter heads that felt like they watched us as they we walked through the garden, you know, and there were pollinators all over and the colors were beautiful and the smells were amazing. And then he invited us to taste as we walked through the garden. Wow. And I was, you know, tasting herbs I'd never heard of, like lemon licorice mint and chocolate basil. And, you know, my senses were ecstatic, actually. And, uh, and I remembered that as a child, nature had always been where I went for solace. Mm. And when life was really chaotic and turbulent, and I wasn't sure how to restore my equilibrium, I went to nature. So then this master gardener named Gabriel Howarth started explaining to us why he was growing this garden and that it, it was to protect the biodiversity of life itself and of our food plants in particular. Wow. And the reason he was protecting them was because multinational corporations 
or gobbling up little mom and pop seed companies. And as a result, the range of biodiversity options was shrinking really fast. And he said, look, for the survival of life on Earth, this is really vital. And by the time I walked out of that garden, I felt like the spirit of the natural world tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're working for me now. Mm. And it was an unmistakable call. Yeah. And I went home and quit my job at the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival and went to work for Seeds of Change, where I worked my butt off for about five years and was promoted to be president of the company and embarked on the steepest learning curve of my life because I didn't have a business degree, I hadn't didn't know anything about farming and seed farming and about creating a business and social entrepreneurship. I learned it all as I went and thankfully I'm a quick study so I learned a lot fast. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'm sorry this is taking so no, long. No, oh my goodness. Quick Please do not apologize. Please keep going. Okay. <laughs> it's a windy road. It my is. Life. It is. Um, next was Kenny was doing all this research about biodiversity and bioremediation, which is the science of how we remove toxins from our air and soil and water. Mm. And he was discovering that there were all these amazing people who had discovered really cool ways to effectively work with nature to heal nature. And one day he was in a hot tub with a friend and he was bemoaning the fact that these people who were amazing that no one had ever heard of them and that their work was so important to our collective future. Mm. And this friend said, why don't you have a conference? And Kenny said, I've never been to a conference. It sounds boring, why would I do that? And the friend said, here's a grant for $10,000, go have a conference. Wow. And Kenny came to me, because I had a theater background, and said, will you help me make a conference? And neither of us had any reference point. And so we co-created something that to this day is still quite unusual. And it integrates everything in the natural world including everything in the human world mm. in the recognition that it's all one system interconnected and interdependent and um, amazingly it's a nonprofit organization that is about to celebrate our 35th year in existence and we've continued to evolve and morph and change with the times and uh, now Bioneers is also a media company so we produce a lot of media and then one day, a few years into Bioneers, my father had died and I was very brokenhearted. And a friend turned me on to a video. This dates me and tells you how long ago it was. She had a video shop and she loaned me this video and she said, I don't charge for this because I think it's so important. Mm. And the video, the film is called The Burning Times. And when I saw The Burning Times, which is available online, it's a Canadian film that was made in 1990, it tells the story of the three to 400 year period in European history, where somewhere between 50,000 and many millions of women were systematically uh, hunted and persecuted and tortured 
and many of them burned for the supposed crime of being witches. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, it was the first time a whole bunch of things made sense to me, Reese. It was, uh, it was the first time that I understood why I had some irrational fear of speaking my truth in public. Um, right? Yeah. And it was, it was also the first time that all of the impending crises that I knew about from Bioneers could be seen through one lens, which was the imbalance of the masculine and the feminine, not just in terms of embodied people, but in terms of the archetypal principles of the yin and the yang, you know, of those complementary uh, human aspects, which of course ancient philosophies have long seen as requiring interdependence and full balance. Mm. And um, and what I what I learned about as a result of that film was that seven generations of children watched as all the women in their lives were endangered, and and they were wrapped up in systems of societal and civilizational change that systematically undervalued everything associated with the feminine and elevated everything associated with the masculine. Mm. And it was also the first time that I fully came to grips with the fact that I had not come out of college onto a level playing field. You know, and I, I realized like, oh, how many board meetings have I been in where I've made a suggestion and it's fallen on deaf ears. And then when a guy says it, everybody goes, oh, what a good idea, yep. you know. Um, so that really sent me on a path of exploring gender equity and women's leadership and how my own gender had affected my sense of my own possibilities. Hmm. And then there's one further big branch on the tree, or maybe two, but which, which has to do with uh, racial equity mm. and indigeneity and spirituality. And really, each of those things awakened in me at different times. Sure. Bioneers has always had indigeneity at its heart, which we have both an indigenous program that's led by indigenous peoples, but also the idea that everyone is indigenous to Mother Earth, mm. no matter what race or class or where we're from or what our family history is, we are all indigenous to Mother Life. And, um, and I've had the gift of being mentored by a lot of amazing leaders, uh, many of them indigenous. And because a lot of the work, because of my big aha about gender, I spent about 20 years um, co-hosting and convening diverse women leaders mm. of every age and ethnicity and background and orientation and discipline. And through that process, I realized how growing up through systems of white supremacy have uh, jaded my perception and given me blinders, you mm. know? And so... I've become a rather fierce advocate of racial equity and class equity and rebalancing our systems and also applying a spiritual lens that says we have to change ourselves inwardly 
in order to change the world. Mm. So, phew, that was long-winded, but that's the best I got. <laughs> no, and your best is exactly what I wanted. That was absolutely perfect. Thank you for going there and sharing that. There's so many powerful avenues that I, I think all of us can learn from, right? Um, and I really love the way you talk about these different things awakening in you as you go, right? Because we all have such multitudes within us and you don't get to discover them all at once. And that's part of kind of this path is that as you experience new things, these different dimensions of self can grow. Um, but then I think that your journey also really mirrors what you preach a lot. And I, I say preach in the non-religious sense, but of honoring intersectionality within us, within our communities, and um, that by being able to reflect on our own journey as being intersectional, I think you can so much better honor that in other people as well. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to go back to a few things that you brought up. Firstly, how you wanted to approach telling your story from a place of sacred activism. I think that... um, that's really powerful. And the older I get, the more, uh, which of course there's still so much for me to learn. Um, but the more I realize how important that really is in the way we live our life is to do it from the perspective of serving others. Right. Um, and in the beginning of your book, you talk a little bit about returning to this because this lovely copy that I have is the second edition. So of course the first one came out in 2019 and the second edition came out, correct me if I'm wrong, but about a year ago, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me what it was like returning to this work after the incredible changes, incredible in the sense of vast changes that our world and community has seen in the span of those three years. Obviously we're 2023 now, but I feel like 2019 to 2022 and even now is just a time of historic change. And so returning to a work such as this, when I imagine the ideas of um, activism and serving others had to have kind of shifted for you. So I'd love to hear more about that. Mm. Well, for the sake of framing and clarity, I guess I would say first that the opportunity to make a second edition happened because I got a grant in support of my doing that. Mm. And that was an amazing, surprising thing, um, which I was really excited and called to do because the first edition came out as I was tending my mother's end of life. Mm. And so as a result, I had no time, no money, no energy to put into getting the word out. And um, so I felt like something that I cared about deeply that was intended as an offering to the world just never found its place. And, uh, and so the second, the opportunity for a second edition, part of what it meant for me was that I could weave together two parts of my life mm. because at the same time, and I think for me, um, I, I consider my life working towards coherence, you know? So, which is why I <laughs> especially appreciate I, right. <laughs> right, your work. And, um, and so for all these years, for 20 years, I 
hosted these deep dive intensive embodied retreats for women during which I learned so much. And of course, you know, the old adage that we teach what we most need to learn became incredibly vivid to me mm. because every single time I hosted a retreat, I learned volumes um, from the women who were there with me. And so it was, it became an environment of mutual learning. Yeah. And the opportunity to make a second edition meant that I could weave in discussion guides and embodied practices that I had learned from those 20 years with the talks and essays that I had written over the same 20 years of Bioneers. So it really became an opportunity to sort of bring my wholeness mm. into this work in a way that I didn't feel that I had before. Um, but the other thing that feels important to say to your very astute question, Reese, is that as the pandemic shut everything down, I felt a very strong call to go inward. Yeah. And, you know, many of my sources of guidance were reinforcing that. And uh, there were there were rituals and I had a I had a year long mentorship with a species that I was guided to develop. That was an amazing experience. Mm. Um, we also weathered in New Mexico the largest wildfire in northern New Mexico's history. Wow. And it, it was not very far from my forested home. And as a result, um, I learned about rituals to help invite the land and, and express gratitude and prayer to the land for holding us in the ways that it does. Mm -hmm. And I engaged in all sorts of deepening of my own spiritual practices um, because I really felt the need to. And I think, I think what folks may relate to also was that that whole period of time, there was this increasing chatter and distractibility in the world, right? And Absolutely. the political scene and the, and the health scene and the inequity and the violence. I mean, there was so much going on. And uh, my beloved partner is a news hound. So, you know, I, I had to find a way to strengthen my own sense of center and of listening and of guidance when all that was accelerating all around mm. us. And um, so that was another impetus for, for strengthening myself inwardly in the name of um, spiritual activism. Yeah, absolutely. So continuing along that vein, because I tend to agree with you that the more that we strengthen ourselves and grow ourselves, the more we really are growing the world, the communities around us, because we are our, our cup gets bigger. There's more we're able to pour into other communities and people. Um, but another thing that you bring up in your book is the importance of healing, both as that individual and healing relationally institutions. Um, and this is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently, especially is um, what is our role as an individual, especially in a community that has so many institutions that in America, at least we are an institution run um, socio-political economic system. What are the ways that you 
um, you personally practice, but also suggest other people practice healing that relational, um, or I guess relationship with institution? Well, what an interesting question, Reese. Um, I wouldn't say that we're institution run as much as that we are corporate run. Mm. Um, I believe we are living in a time of sort of extinction blasts of corporate power and, and also monopolistic power. And, um, and my sense is, you know, that we are, we are at an inflection point where everything is up for reinvention. And although the mainstream media mostly carries the bad news about how horribly things are falling apart and are corrupted and are being misused and manipulated and all that, um, because of Bioneers, I'm so thankful that I am tapped into really tapped into the world that's being born Mm. and there is extraordinary work being done on almost every level um it's just the mainstream media doesn't cover it so much so um so my sense is that i would never profess to tell anybody where and how they should they should engage with the massive changes that are needed sure sure right but um but like you, I am invested in everyone doing their own work to find their own sense of calling or purpose. Mm. So that serving what you most love and want to protect or defend is part of my definition of purpose. And also it includes an element that, that speaks to what you were referencing before about how self-care and self-nourishment and you know, being true to our, to the entirety of our human selves, um, is a service to the world. And I think, I think for me, you know, some of that is connected to how even language itself is being reinvented because, you know, uh, I, I don't look for how much impact I'm having. I look for how much influence I'm having, you know, because we've inherited all these words that are aggressive and violent and, you know, right? Absolutely. I don't want to be triggered. I mean, no one wants to be triggered, but right. <laughs> but let's not use a gun word, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so I think that, you know, yes, there is great power in institutions. I was just reading a data survey that said that the nonprofit sector is now the second largest work sector and employer in this country after corporations. And now that includes health institutions and a lot of university institutions, but still um, that was fascinating. And the gender pay gap is less bad in the nonprofit sector than in the corporate sector significantly. You know, and so there are all these trends that are happening slowly but surely and labor movements and, 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 and I think we all have to be very, we each have to be very discerning about with all these possibilities of reinvention all around us, 
what are the one, the one or two that really most call us? And, uh, and to me, that's the call to leadership, which of course we're all redefining every day as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I love that you brought up language because um, linguistics is just so, one, just fascinating to me, but two, it is the only tool we have to try and connect with one another in a discursive way, right? Like, of course, there's so many other tools that we can communicate with, but language is kind of our home as a speaking species, as a writing and storytelling species. And you talk a lot about story in your um, book as well. And I think that language is a really big part of story. And if we don't have the appropriate language or whatever language we have is inherently changing the way our story is told, which changes the story itself, right? So I think that that is absolutely an extremely vital part of this entire kind of equation that we are traversing. Um, So I want to put a pin in that and come back to it in just a moment. But to kind of continue along this conversation of being an individual and taking on this self-care, but also wanting to be an active um, member and leader of reinvention and um, really driving that positive change. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the balance between these two things and the balance between taking time for oneself, but also giving back and the the tension that kind of exists and the call to do both of these things. Well, and not only both, but many of these things, right? right? I mean, absolutely. You know, for everyone who is parenting, I have come to believe that parenting is one of the most amazing forms of leadership there is, mm. even though it's not been conventionally described that way. And similarly, you know, there are many of us who are in the sandwich generation who are tending for elders at the same time as raising kids. Holy cow. So there, there you're trying to balance self-care with world care, with parenting and, and you know, end-of-life care. Right. That's just crazy. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so I think the first thing I would say is to recognize that I don't have the solution. I'm working on it all the time. And and it requires a certain amount of self-awareness to be able to know when you've gone over a line or when you've overcommitted. You know, I'm, I'm currently working with a pattern in myself, which many listeners may relate to, of, um, of over, committing and over productivity and having a to-do list that's way too long and and then feeling kind of exhausted and breathless because I can never get to the end of my to-do list Mm. right so I have I have this big appetite and it's bigger than my capacity yeah and as I work to change that I was telling a friend about it and I said have you ever experienced that when you're just at the trying to finish a pattern that you know you've had for a long time, suddenly the pattern comes up bigger exponentially than ever before. And she cracked up and she said, yeah, social scientists have a name for that. 
they call it an extinction burst. And it's been making me laugh all ever since for two weeks because I see extinction bursts everywhere in our, right? Yeah. In in our governance, in our political life, in our economic life, in our, yeah. So, you know, I think I used to refer to it as the dying dinosaur's tale of patriarchy was doing as much destruction as it could on its way out. Right. Now I have a social scientist name for it. (laughs) Wow. That is so fascinating to me in both how that applies to the inner self, right? Like you were saying, when you are kind of healing this one thing that you're working on internally, it has this really big kind of flare up before you can really move past it. But absolutely seeing reflections of that in the world around us, that is what a beautifully poignant and concise way to (laughs) capture that. Wow. Um, Okay. To return a little bit to this storytelling piece, um, as I was reading your book and the, the portions on it that bring up story and the importance of sharing story, this is a little bit of a pivot from what we were just talking about, but one of my, um, most impactful books that I've ever read is The Truth About Stories, A Native Narrative by Thomas King. And the things he discusses in his book really reminded me a lot about um, your work with indigeneity, but also with, you know, self-healing and community healing. Um, And one quote that he has from this book is, do the stories we tell reflect the world as it truly is or have we simply started off with the wrong story? Um, and so I would just like to ask you that question. Of course, I don't think there's a perfect answer for it. Um, King does not answer it within his novel. I don't know if it's a book that, or a book, a question that can be answered, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Mm. Oh, it's a wonderful quote. And, um, and let's see. What are my thoughts on it? Well, my thoughts are that, you know, to, to make me, to find congruence in our lives, um, I've found for myself that I have had to, and I'm continuing to peel away layer after layer after layer of conditioning. Mm. And that conditioning, um, determines how I see the world yeah how it determines the story through which I filter the world right and you know one of my favorite um, quotes that I refer to often is from Fritjof Capra who um, is a an Austrian physicist and he says that the the transformation into an eco-literate society one that knows uh, how to live in harmony with the natural world requires a shift from a focus on counting things to a focus on mapping relationship. Wow. Right? And so, you know, for me, one of those, one of those ideas that feels really important is, you know, I learned from, uh, a traditional elder that in Cherokee, there is no word for love of an object. Anyone who is considered to love an object is considered to be insane. Mm. Um, because only things with life energy in them are 
are relatable, really, right? And now that's interesting when it comes to elements and the rock people and the water people and all that. But, um, but again, the story our culture has us come in with has a very limited view. Mm. And what I have found is that um, there are indigenous practices that are helping me to deepen my quality of relationship with the non-human world mm. and that I'm finding very, very helpful. And Reese, there's one thing I want to go back. There's a thread I want to go back and pull on. Absolutely. Which Please is, do. Okay. What you asked me about balance mm. and what I realized I didn't say that I wanted to say is that hard though it is, I think an essential ingredient in finding our ways toward balance has to do with self-love mm. and self-acceptance and self-valuation and that you know as we can come to perceive ourselves as the instruments of our purpose right i mean my biggest prayer to myself has always been may i live what my soul brought me here to be and may i live wow. it fully and um you know, in order to do that, I have had to strip away a lot of self-limiting beliefs, of mm. self-judgment, of, you know, many, many aspects of myself that have never previously felt safe to reveal or express or appreciate. And right. so I think, I think that quest to find balance in our lives between all the things that pull on us you know, for one thing, it becomes a question of what is truly ours to do. Mm. And which is a great question to ask. Absolutely. You know, and it changes, you mm -hmm. know, you were remarking about how my, my sense of meaning and my purpose in my life has continued to evolve and change. And I, I tend to think of it as either a tree or a river. That, that has new branches and new rivulets, you know, and that's, you know, because life is change. Absolutely. And, and so, so I just wanted to name that because there are practices that I talk about in my book about mm -hmm. how to both strip away the, the conditioned responses that have us keep ourselves small and also how to begin to practice self-appreciation and self-love in ways that are not hallmarky, right. but are real, you know? Right. Well, in thinking about what you said about love, how it, it true love, de defining true is complicated, right? But not this, you know, love of an object, but love. Um, I, I agree. It has to be with something that you can relate to. It's a relational, it's, it's an exchange. It is a back and forth. It is not a one way energy flow. It is a connective, um, regenerative circuit, system. regenerative yeah. system. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That you have with whoever something energetically else right but to think of self-love as this regenerative system as well how do we yes. align this flow of love within ourselves connecting all of these different parts um 
is I think extremely powerful. Um, right. And I think that goes back to your discussion of kind of the dichotomy of humans and how we do have this yin and yang and the feminine and the masculine, and there's all of these different aspects, but I think we can even look at it in a more multidimensional way where there's it broader than just dichotomies. There's all these different pieces. How do we keep that flow in flow in moving? And that, I don't know that, that those are just thoughts that are popping up as you're talking about self-love and how when, when our circuit is working appropriately, how much better we are able to meet someone else in flow, right? And other communities in flow. So I'm, I'm so glad you continued to tug on that thread because I think that's extremely important. Um, you are also talking about how the ways that we make ourselves small. Um, and a little bit earlier in your discussion of your own story, you were talking about how a big part of how we are taught to make ourselves small has to do with our gender as women, right? That um, women are certainly taught to make themselves smaller for um, the men in our lives, for other people in communities. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the deconstructing of that for you and what that has been like. Huh. Okay. Um, hmm. Well... It's been gradual and over Mm. time, but one of the first things that I I feel like I want to offer is that I have come to believe, as I've learned, as science has proven, that epigenetic trauma exists, and that which means that we all carry in our DNA the traumas of our ancestors Mm. and of the past, and you know, depending what your belief system might be, that doesn't necessarily have to mean that you have direct descendants in the burning times. Right. Right. Um, but what it has led me to believe, I, you know, I've long questioned why patriarchy is so uh, intractable mm-hmm. and why it's so universal around the world. I mean, I just read a New York Times story that said that witch hunting is still happening in India, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was devastating to me and so painful. Yeah. But, you know, people have a propensity for finding blame for when things aren't going right Mm. and and for a kind of tribalism. And so I believe that the traumas and the biases of the burning times are actually alive in probably every person alive on the planet today. Mm. And that has helped me to remove the overlay of, um, you know, masculine, feminine as polarities. Right. And and instead to really consider, I mean, really I see my framework that I've been using is, I call it full spectrum leadership. And... You know, for me, full spectrum leadership means I want to be able to draw from anywhere on the spectrum of feminine to masculine human qualities and also spiritual, embodied, heart wisdom, all the other places that our society has tended to devalue Mm. in terms of our ways of knowing. Um, That I think, you know, the life I want to live integrates all of my ways of knowing. Mm. And, um, 
And so I would say in direct answer to your question, Reese, that over time it has been a freeing. It has been a very liberatory experience to peel away layers of conditioning. And, you know, I'll tell you one of the most recent ones, I mean, just to give it a concrete example, is for years and years, my husband is a brilliant writer and has been since he was in grade school. And so I have always deferred to him in the writing realm. Mm -hmm. And when I first started speaking at Bioneers, he was kind of my role model. So I started writing for speaking and then reading it from a podium at the stage. And of course, as I've had years and years of facilitation experience, I've come to trust more and more that my presence when I'm not reading is actually much more influential and much stronger mm. than when I am reading. And so this past year, um, I literally had an experience where someone suggested to me that I introduce two people who are incredible mentors and role models to me without reading their introductions. And it was so scary for me to do that, but it was also so liberating. Yeah. And I felt like it helped me peel away that layer of conditioning that said, mm. you have to read when you're doing public speaking. Right. Not so anymore. I can trust what's in me and what comes through me in a deeper way. Right. Um, yeah. I love that. So it really, please don't let me put words in your mouth, but it sounds like it is this kind of ongoing process of peeling these layers back, peeling the conditions back as you go, as you comport through the world, trying to become um, more authentic in that way as you go, trying to become the the highest version of yourself with peeling these layers away. You know, the way that I think about it, Reese, is that it's a simultaneous effort of mm. peeling away and cultivating. And so mm. anyone who's gardening or has gardened knows that you have to be constantly weeding, right? Yep. In order for the plants you're, you're cultivating to really thrive. And so, you know, there are exercises in the book on how to compost things that you want to give back to the earth that you're right. done with. You know, this is the layers of conditioning. I think of it often as an onion skin. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I am cultivating myself toward who I most admire, who are the role right. models and the mentors and what are the qualities in myself that I want to strengthen and, and doing both at the same time so that um, I'm growing more and more into the instrument I was born to become. Absolutely. There's really no building up without um, clearing away or taking something away without something moving to fill its place, right? Because all these energies push up against each other. So it's that constant movement. I, I absolutely love that. And thank you for offering that. Um, I have a few more questions before we dive into some final questions to round us out. Um, one of them is in this kind of process, talking about this simultaneous um, exchange between growth and clearing away. Um, there's a 
moment in your book where you talk about, um, here it is, uh, it, it, it relates a little bit back to this idea of making ourselves smaller and not letting ourselves show up in this whole way. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've been able to shift from this um, place of diminishing and um, place of lack into more of an energy of abundance and resonance? Mm. Well, sure. Um, I mean, I think the best way I know to, to offer that is to give examples Sure. Um, you know, when I, there was a moment early in my process where I realized that when I got out of the shower in the morning, I had all these voices go off in my head about my butt being too big or my hips being too wide or my belly being too round or, you know, um, and I realized, oh my gosh, I am doing violence to myself every single day. I have to stop this. Yeah. And, uh, so I invented a ritual and this is uh, perhaps a good time to offer the nine words of wisdom that have been so essential to my process which are um, consciousness creates matter language creates reality ritual creates relationship mm. and I was gifted that by a Peruvian teacher named Oscar Miro Quesada. And, <clears throat> and I have leaned on it all kinds of ways. And so in this case, I made up a ritual and I uh, took a skin oil that I liked and I infused it with essential oils that felt like they gave me energy and that I loved and made this skin oil so that each morning after I got out of the shower, I would oil my skin with this wonderfully scented oil. And it only took two, three minutes. Sure. But as I did it, I would pour love into my body. Mm. I would thank it for all the ways that it supports and sustains me. I would thank it for its gifts. Mm. And I would literally just be intentionally loving to this, this you know, sack of water and organs that's holding my spirit and purpose and heart and everything right that allows and, you uh, to be this instrument right exactly yeah and and so I think you know there are lots of rituals that I have made up over the years to help me stop judging myself and mm. learn to appreciate myself and get more realistic about my gifts and my my weaknesses and not have them be a source of embarrassment or shame, mm. but rather a realistic assessment um, because I have amazing gifts and I also have some pretty bad blind spots. And I, those things inform me about who I need to partner with and how, you know, and they're Absolutely. invaluable. Absolutely. Um, and then at the same time, I think, uh, you know, for me, one of the greatest learnings from 20 years of convening women was no wonder the patriarchy has set us up to be in catfights with each other because women's capacity to reflect and strengthen and accelerate each other's learning is 
awesome mm. and amazing. And so, you know, I am a great advocate of women's circles or at least intimate women friends who you can turn to and say, this is how I think I am, but tell me how you perceive me. Right. Because, you know, as you were saying, Reese, it's the bridge of love between self and other is about accepting someone else in their difference from mm. yourself, mm. in their full difference. And I think part of the transformation that we're all a part of is going from seeing difference as scary to seeing difference as a virtue yes. and diversity as a virtue. Yeah. Because in nature, it's the ecosystems with the greatest diversity that have the greatest resilience and adaptability to survive and thrive. And we are a subset of nature, of course. So what's true in nature is true for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is so powerful. And I, I think it, you sharing that example goes back to something you said at the top of the podcast that this journey and of, of growth really does come with this element of self-awareness and that you are able to recognize this moment that you're like, I'm actually doing harm to myself, that mm. that, that takes this moment of self-awareness. So there's that piece, but then there's also this piece of now how am I intentionally going to put love back on top of that so that I can work through that. And now how can that make me better um, serve others? And it really brings, I think, our entire conversation full circle. Um, my last question based on your book, uh, going off of this idea that we see, we're beginning working towards seeing difference as virtue, as power, as instrumental to understanding our community, our world, ourselves, other people. Um, towards the end of your book, in the section about trauma, rupture, and repair, you have a quote that just absolutely struck me. Um, so I really just want to call attention to it and then pick your brain a little bit about where you were at writing this. Um, but you were discussing, discussing, discussing with um, a group of women who were talking about all these different traumas. And you said that you realized that you really needed to work on focusing on feeling injustice, not just thinking about it. Mm. And as a white woman um, who wants to do a lot of good, right? Um, and I think a lot of people can relate to wanting to do a lot of good, um, but also we're fallible, we're human, we're falling short. Um, and there are experiences that I am never going to be able to understand, right? That they will just not be my experience in the body that I live in. I had never thought about it framed in this way that thinking about it is quite different from feeling about it. So again, I just really wanted to call attention to that and hear a little bit more about what that means for you and what it meant as you wrote it. Well, it brings up two different essays in the book for me. And, you know, one um, was this pivotal moment 
that I describe in some detail in the book where uh, there was a, an African-American um, environmental justice leader who arrived at our very rural retreat and announced that um, she had forgot she had asthma and had forgotten to bring her inhaler. And uh, I didn't have a lot of experience with asthma and neither did my co-facilitator. And as a result, we didn't quite know what to do or how to prepare or what, how seriously to take it. So uh, on one of the last days after I had really kind of fallen in love with this woman and become a deep admirer of her courage and her stand and her commitment. And on the last night we had a dance party and we all went to bed exhausted and sweaty and happy. And at three in the morning, we were awoken by her roommate saying she's having an asthma attack. I don't know what to do. Please come help. And uh, so what I describe, I'm going to try to abbreviate this, but it's all in the book is that I went into her room and I, because my mind didn't know what to do, I dropped into my body instinctively for instructions. Mm. And I had this profound experience of getting instruction after instruction and doing them. And eventually, and I have no idea whether what I did had anything to do with it or not, Sure. but eventually her breathing slowed and it was clear that she was not going to die. And I sank down to the floor by her bed and I had tears streaming down my face. Yeah. And I realized that no matter how long I had known about the increased incidence of heart disease and asthma among communities of color where factories, polluting factories are most often cited, I had known about them from the distance that my privilege afforded me. Mm -hmm. And it was as if um, that experience pierced the shell of privilege that had grown around my heart. Mm. And I never, and and I actually spoke that experience and told that story at a Bionaires conference, which was one of the scariest things I've ever done. And afterward, in the years that followed, I had numerous women of color come to me and say, I saw that talk that you gave online and I decided I could trust you because of it. Um, which was a profound experience. And, you know, there's another story that I tell that's related but different, where um, at an earlier place in that week-long intensive deep dive that we did, a different group of women all spoke about the traumas that their ancestors had experienced. And because we wound up having 30 to 50% women of color in those trainings, um, there was a huge diversity of, you know, a woman whose grandmother's feet had been bound and one who'd been in an internment camp and, you know, slavery and all the things that uh, so many humans on earth today have experienced in their ancestry. And after hearing all those stories, there was a heaviness in the room because we could all feel empathically, wow, that's a lot of pain. Mm. And what we wound up doing was co-inventing a ritual where we went out and we found a branch with lots of 
branches coming off of it. And we made like little prayer wishes on colored pieces of paper and we tied them up onto all the branches and we made a fire. And together that night, we, we sent all of our prayers into the fire and released them to the spirit world. And it was a very beautiful way of coming together after something that could have driven us apart. Mm. Um, that doing this embodied ritual together shifted the energy very dramatically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've just come to realize that in this work to address a society that is so grossly unequal, mm. um, it's the actions that we take that matter. It's not what we think. It's not what we know. It's where we show up and how, you know? And um, so I would offer that. No, with humility and, that is... and generosity and in true service. Right, absolutely. And before I round out with our final, the final questions I have for you, I do want to acknowledge that, you know, in this conversation, we are two women who are coming to it with privilege. So, of course, this is just our um, perspective. So, final two questions. One, is there anything that we missed that, in light of our conversation, you want to clarify, add something onto? something that we haven't touched on that you feel called to speak. This is kind of open time to make sure that if there's anything on your heart that you feel you need to say, this is, this is the time to do so. Well, thank you, Reese. I think, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that I think this feels like a really meaty conversation and like we've covered a lot of really important ideas and I'm really yeah. grateful to you for that. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, you know, what I've realized is this is a hard time to be trying to get a book out into the world. Mm. And so I've really disengaged from whether people buy the book or not. Um, if you go to the bioneers.org slash NCS book, uh, URL, then you can download a free introduction to the book. And um, you can also sign up for the Bioneers newsletter, which will give you access to this whole world of incredibly inspiring media. Mm. That's, you know, in this time where so much of what we're exposed to is depressing and debilitating and disempowering, um, Bioneers has the opposite effect. and. Mm. And so lastly, I mean, my spirit impulse is a very generous one. And um, so it's in that vein that I offer Bioneers up and also my own website, which is ninasimons.com. And uh, where I think all of the podcasts that I've been doing are listed and also where I'm teaching um, because I'm gonna be teaching in August uh, a course on sacred activism that I'm really excited about and with a fellow teacher who I adore and is amazing. And um, that's all I would add. And that's, thank you, Reese. Thank yeah. you. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that and making sure people have as much access to you and the wonderful work you do as possible. Um, my final question to tie a bow on our conversation here today is I just ask for one word that would describe how you feel right now. 
thankful. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is perfect. <laughs> that is all I need. Nina, thank you so, so much. I, I'm going to echo your word, thankful, um, for your time, your energy, your service for being here and having this conversation with me. I deeply appreciate it. And I'm thankful that our paths got to cross. <laughs> me too. And as a friend recently reminded me, the medicine for grievance is gratitude. Mm. So may we all practice gratitude in our lives. And um, big, big thanks and deep appreciation to you, Miss Reese, and to everyone listening. Of course, you too. I will let you go and hopefully talk with you soon. I hope so. so much for being here today. And I want to thank Nina again for being here and sharing her story. Again, please check out Nina's book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Listens for Leadership. I'm sure you can tell in the episode that I deeply enjoyed it, and I think you really will too. I would love for you to be a part of this conversation, so please share your thoughts on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or LinkedIn, all at the Cohere Collective. And if you would like, you can follow me on Instagram at Lillian Reese Brown. If you want to hear even more of my thoughts about today's episode, subscribe to our newsletter on thecoherecollective.com to catch the blog post coming out this Friday. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you feel so inclined, please leave an honest reviewer rating. This is really the number one way to support me and the Cohere Collective in making meaning and the work we're doing, and hopefully reach other people who will resonate with this content. Sharing the pod is also a really great way to help support the podcast and start really good conversations with important people in your life. Thank you to Podington Bear for making meanings theme music and Nicole Ostriker for making meanings art and podcast cover. You can find Nicole's work on Instagram at Nicole O Creates or at Nicole O Design. Right now, I am feeling rejuvenated. I just came back from a lovely vacation that was truly life-changing and getting back to work and returning to the day in, day out choices of making meaning in our everyday life has been powerful for me after vacation. So I've really enjoyed spending this time with you all here today and I'm looking forward to the next time. Thank you for being here and hopefully I will see y'all next time. Love.